Father, we thank you for this time to come together today. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that as we look at it, uh, this is a challenging passage and it covers some things that might be a bit weird for us. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would guide us as we look at it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was living in San Diego, this is going back a while now, uh, there was a young woman who worked part-time for the church where I was on staff. And uh, she would be frequently late to everything, but especially late to morning meetings. So we'd have like, I think it was a Tuesday morning meeting at nine o'clock, which is not that early on a Tuesday. Uh, But she would be late pretty much every week. And she'd come in pretty, you know, kind of this harried look on her face and, and, and she'd She'd walk in and she'd interrupt the meeting and she'd say, I'm so sorry I'm late. The devil is really attacking me today. My alarm clock didn't go off. And she would say this almost every week in that meeting. And I remember always thinking a couple things when she'd say that. I'd think, hmm, it's really funny. He didn't seem to stop you from stopping off at Starbucks to pick up your coffee on the way here. Um, And then secondly, I thought, if that's true, like, like Satan's a powerful being, That's a really lame tactic. Like, if that's actually true, that's actually what was going on. That's a really lame tactic. I mean, in movies, he makes people levitate and spin their heads around and spew out green green vomit. But for this woman, it was her alarm clock. Um, So the devil, um, he must have really been phoning it in on her or something. I don't know. But, um, you know, you read a Bible passage like the one we're looking at today and Usually there's two reactions to a passage like this. So, um, in fact, in the introduction to his little book, The Screwtape Letters, which if you haven't read, you should, um, C.S. Lewis talks about how people tend to respond to any talk about the devil or demons. And here's what he says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. There's two responses, he says. And I think you can guess which error my former colleague fell into. She saw the devil behind everything, even her alarm clock. Um, Almost as if any bad thing that happened was because the devil was somehow just pulling the strings and trying to make her life more difficult. But on the other hand, to disbelieve in the devil or demons altogether is just as much of an error. It's just as much an error. In fact, the, the pages right here in the pages of our Bible, what we read today, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so it's right there in our passage. And so to... to deny or to ignore is just as much an error as to overemphasize. Now, it's likely each one of us falls into one of the other categories. So either we give the devil and his demons too much credit, or we give him none at all. And uh, as we get to the very end of Ephesians, look at how Paul starts this section in verse 10. Look at the word he, he starts with. He starts with the word, finally. Finally. So what's he doing? This is, this is the last thing he's going to write to them. This is the last section of the letter. He's, he's probably not going to communicate much more with them after this. So it's his final word. And what does he choose to talk about? He talks about the devil and he talks about his demons. And what we need to do in order to stand firm until the end. And now my guess is most of us fall into the category of not giving the devil much credit at all. 
most of us. But the problem is, if we fall into that category, or even if we lean too far into that category, what Paul says here is pretty important. He says, if we don't pay attention, then we won't stand. We won't stand firm until the end. And so what this text is going to show us is we've got to come to grips with not only the battle that's going on inside of us, that's what most of the second half of the letter has been about, but now he switches and we have to come to grips with the battle that's going on around us. And we really do, we really do have a real enemy. We really have a real enemy who wants nothing more than for each one of us to fall. In other words, he wants nothing more than for each one of us to turn away from the Lord. That's our enemy. And so how do we stand firm to the end? Well, we stand firm by knowing, look what he says in verse 10, by knowing the strength to stand firm until the end is in the Lord. Knowing that the strength to stand firm until the end is in the Lord. And so to get that, we need to see three things. So we're going to see that first, God's enemy is our enemy. Second, we're going to see that God's armor is our armor. And then thirdly, awkwardly, I couldn't come up with a better way of wording this. God's ear is our ear. I apologize. But maybe that will stick in your head. Uh, Now, it's pretty clear all through the Old Testament. So let's look at God's enemy is our enemy. And it's pretty clear all through the Old Testament that God has an enemy, another spiritual being who is always fighting against God and his plans, always coming up against him. And of course, God is good and his enemy is evil, right? So good versus evil. And the first time you meet this enemy is in the form of a serpent back in Genesis 3. But he's described elsewhere, not as a serpent, but as this like majestic being of light. And he's given the name Satan or the devil and a few other names. And, and because the books we read and the films that we watch and the shows that we watch, we're sort of conditioned to think that God and the devil are two equals battling it out. We're kind of conditioned to think that. Two equals battling it out. You know, Batman and the Joker, Gandalf and Saruman, Iron Man and whatever Mickey Rourke's character was called with the things. Uh, Two equals battling out the fight between good and evil. But the most important thing we need to know about the devil is he is in no way God's equal. He's in no way God's equal. He's not an equal power opposite to God. God alone is self-existent from all eternity. God alone is the uncreated being. God alone is all-powerful, all-knowing. The devil is nothing more than a created being, a fallen angel. Again, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, there's no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. No being could attain perfect badness opposite to the perfect goodness of God. For when you've taken away every kind of good thing, intelligence, will, memory, energy, and existence in self, there'd be none of him left. And so all the devil, he's a fallen angel. That's all he is. A being who's abused his free will and became God's enemy. And so on the one hand, it's just not a fair fight. On the one hand, you should think of the battle between the Lord and the devil like that scene in Indiana Jones when the guy with the sword comes and he does all the intimidating things. You remember that? And it's like, oh man, Indiana's done. And he just pulls out a gun and shoots him. (laughs) That's how we should look at it. But on the other hand, the devil is still portrayed all through the Bible. And in this text is a formidable enemy. And not just God's enemy, but our enemy. Because look at these words in in our passage. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, let me just point out a couple of things about the nature of this struggle that we're in. So what we're seeing is that God's enemy is our enemy, and he's a formidable enemy. So let's just look at the struggle that we're in. You know, with all this talk about armor, the image here is of a war, of a battle. And Paul, he could have chosen a number of words for that word struggle in verse 12. He had a few words he could choose from that were kind of military-like and talked about fighting. But the one he chose is actually the word for wrestling. Like wrestling someone with your bare hands. We're talking about hand-to-hand combat here. It's a battle. And if you're firing arrows back and forth, that's a battle. It's a battle if you're clanging swords together. But the battle is at its most desperate when you're wrestling with your enemy on the ground. And that's the picture that Paul has painted here. Our struggle. Our wrestling on the ground. And so God's enemy is our enemy. And Paul says we're wrestling him on the ground. And, And look at the words Paul uses then to describe our enemy. He doesn't just use the word demons or devils. Notice he uses the words authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. What's he doing there when he uses that? He could have just used the one word. He's trying to show us how intimidating, how menacing, how formidable our enemy is. And so he's racking up terms to say, yes, these forces are not God's equal in any way, but don't underestimate them. Because if you don't stand, they will devour you. Now, again, in our culture, we have a little bit of a problem here because in our culture, we don't think the devil is involved unless our heads are spinning around and we're projectile vomiting across the room, right? Like we think, okay, maybe the devil's not involved. We tend to think of the spiritual battle like the exorcist. We think of it, if we believe in it all, as something extraordinary, something not every day. And probably the extraordinary, that that sort of thing does happen. But look more closely at our text and and you'll actually begin to see where the battleground really is. Just look a little bit more closely at it. If you were to scan verses 13 to 17, you see the real battleground. The battleground is over truth and righteousness. It's over peace and faith and salvation. That's the battlefield. That's where we're wrestling on the ground. And so it's unlikely that the devil will make you levitate and spin your head around, but it's extremely likely that he will undermine your truth. It's extremely likely that he will undermine your faith. It's extremely likely that he'll lead you to deny truth and righteousness. That's where the battleground is. I'm going to go back to verse 11 because it's really important that we see this. In verse 11, When God's enemy and our enemy is named, Paul uses a specific name for him. He uses Diabolos, the devil. And that word, it means liar. So verse 11 is saying, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the liar's schemes. Now, a good liar is subtle. A good liar means you don't realize they're lying to you when they're doing it. And the devil, he's the best liar. He's the chief of all liars. Which means the battle with him is not head spinning around and levitating. The battle with him is subtle. The battle, the real battle, is just in the middle of an average Tuesday afternoon. 
Now, let me get practical for just a minute on this, uh, on what this looks like. What does this battle actually look like? How, how, do, how do we know we're in the battle? What does that really look like? I heard an illustration once that sheds a lot of light on this. Um, I don't understand this because I'm not a musician, so if this isn't true, just accept the illustration. I don't know if this actually works, but take a piano, not this one, because that's just electric, but take a piano, think of like a, like a grand piano, and open up the top and sing a note into it. And whatever string your voice is attuned to, that string will start to vibrate. It will actually vibrate along with your voice. Now, most of us, when we're singing, we have no idea what note we're singing, um, but you can find out. So next time you're around a piano, open it up and just sing a note, and then you'll know what note you're singing. Um, because you'll see which string is vibrating. You haven't, touched the, you haven't touched the string, you haven't plucked it, you haven't hit the key, and yet it's vibrating. You did it with your voice. That's what the devil does. So the devil can't make a good person bad. He can only make a flawed person worse. The problem is all of us are flawed. That's all of us. And so what he does is he plays on what's already inside you through his lies, through his schemes. That's what he does. Now, Paul already alluded to this back in Ephesians chapter 4. Back there it says, remember it says, don't let the sun go down in your anger? And then there's a little interesting phrase right after it. It says, lest you give the devil a foothold. In other words, the anger, it's already in there. You're already angry. It's already in you. What the devil does is play off the anger that's already in there. And he does that not through an audible voice, but... We'll see all through the Old Testament that the devil works through, he works through temptation. He works through accusation. Temptation to do something you know you shouldn't do, oftentimes something you don't even want to do. Or accusation, he makes you feel so guilty that you think, what's the big deal? I've already given in before. what, What harm does it really do if I do it again? And that's the battleground. It's the battleground of truth. It's the battleground of righteousness. It's the battleground of faith. It's the battleground of salvation. And think of any of your own struggles, any of your own vices, and that's where the devil is wrestling you. Lying to you, deceiving you, tempting you, accusing you. But, and then this leads us actually to point two, you're not in the battle alone. So you are in a battle God's enemy is your enemy, but you're not in the battle alone. You're not wrestling on your own because point two, God's armor is our armor. Verse 13, therefore, so this is therefore, because we're in this wrestling match with God's enemy, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. And so put on the full armor of God, he says. Now, you can interpret that in two ways. Uh, one way to interpret it is that it's sort of like when you go to a baseball game or a basketball game or a football game or whatever, whatever you go to, or even like a musical, and you put on the T-shirt, right? You've got your Dodgers shirt on or your Lakers shirt on. And everyone there is wearing a shirt or a hat with the team's logo on, you know? So it's like an identity thing. That's, that's one way. It's like you just kind of put on some God things and then you're sort of identified with God. That's one way to interpret it. But there's another way to read it. And most scholars think this other way is what Paul means. The other way to read it is to put on the armor that 
that belongs to God himself. So it's like LeBron James gave you his jersey that he wears to put it on his own, God's very armor. I'm not equating LeBron James with God, by the way. Just, you get what I was doing there. <laughs> I hope. Now they think this because all through the book of Isaiah it says that God himself wears armor. And in the Psalms it talks about it as well. Look, look at our passage here. It says, to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, pick up the sword of the spirit. And in Isaiah it says that God himself wears righteousness and faithfulness as his belt. God wears a belt. It also says that righteousness is his breastplate. He wears the helmet of salvation upon his head and his words are like a sword. That's all through Isaiah. It's the same armor. And what this is saying is that God gives you not a replica, not a knockoff, but his actual armor. In other words, it's the armor of God, not simply because he gives it. It's the armor of God because he wears it. It's his armor. God's armor is our armor. Now, we need to look at this armor because verse 13 says that it's only by wearing this armor that when the day of evil comes, we'll be able to stand. That's what it says. Now, there's two things I want you to see about this armor. First is that it's defensive. And I know a sword sounds like an, an offensive weapon, and it is that. But actually, you know, if you, when you watch battle scenes, most of the job of the sword is to block the other guy from hitting you with a sword, right? So it's a defensive piece of armor. And when you put that in the context of all the other, the other five things, all of them, they're defensive weapons. Now, there is an offensive weapon in this passage, but we'll come to that in a minute. So what have you got? You've got, think of the ancient soldier. You've got a breastplate to protect your vital organs, an armor to cover your feet. You've got a shield. You've got a helmet. You've got a sword. And what's the point of all these? The point is this, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the fitted feet, the shield, the helmet, the sword, all of them are defensive. And if they're defensive, that means a couple things. One, it means to be able to stand, to stand against the devil's lying scheme, schemes, you have to play defense. You can't just go on the offense, you have to play defense. And can you see now that the first error to disbelieve the existence of the devil or to disbelieve his involvement means that you can't stand? Like if you don't go on defense, you won't stand. Remember, he's a master liar. First Peter tells us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so to not play defense means to little by little, bit by bit, lose the battle. Um, it is really hard to have a sermon on this and not refer frequently to the screw tape letters. So here's another one. Um, and uh, what I've read to you before comes just from the introduction but the, the book itself is like a fable. And it's a fable of an older demon mentoring a younger demon. And that younger demon is like assigned to a human to try and make his life awful and make him turn away from the Lord. Okay? So you're reading this letter from the older demon to the younger demon. Okay? That, that's what it is. Um, and at one point, the older demon says this. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. 
In other words, little jabs. Little jabs here, a punch there, a tiny cut over there, over and over and over again until the man falls. That's what it means to not play defense. And so the point of listing the defensive armor is so that we will play defense. And so that's the first reason Paul lists the defensive armor. But secondly, to be able to stand means you need God's armor. You have to have his. Your willpower, your own strength, that isn't enough. You need a resource that will extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. In other words, you have to put it on for it to do any good. And only then will you stand your ground. Only then will you be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the devil's lies. Now, it doesn't come through so clearly in our English translation, but when it says, put on the full armor of God, stand firm at the belt of truth buckled, it's actually saying, it actually says, having been buckled. Having been buckled with the breastplate in place and so on. It's actually referring to a single past action that's already complete. So what he's saying is, the armor's on. And what he's saying is you don't put your armor on in the middle of the battle. You do it before. You do it to prepare for the battle. Not as a reaction. You only, look, if you only react, you're too late. If the arrow's already coming and you don't have the armor on, you're too late. And so Paul is saying here is put it on now. Don't wait for the temptation. Don't wait for the devil to come and lie and then put it on. Put it on now. Put it on today so that when it comes, you're already covered. Now, the second main thing we need to see about the armor is that it's not all equal in importance. I used to think that this list of armor was a list of six kind of equal things. You know, like you gather your your hoard of stuff that you need before you go into battle. I used to think that. Uh, So you get your belt and your breastplate and your boots and your shield and your helmet and your sword. But I came across a couple of commentators that made a really fascinating point, something I'd never seen before. In verse 14, when it talks about the belt of truth, It's really saying the belt, that's the foundation. The belt of truth is the foundation. The putting on the belt of truth is the foundation principle. And all the others are an application of this foundational truth. And the reason they said that is the word there for belt, it's not, it's not like a, the kind of belt that I'm wearing today, or some of you might be wearing today. It's not the the thin leather strap that holds your pants up and you stick your sword in. That's not what he's referring to. It was actually like a thick leather sheath. It was something that you wore underneath everything. And so it covered virtually your entire body, like from here down to your knees. Um, It protected your thighs from arrows and and everything else. And now, forgive me, but the best word I can think of to describe it is like a girdle or a slip under a dress, which I know ruins the whole, like, you know, military armor metaphor. So I apologize. But that's that's the best thing. And... That's what it is. It's the foundation for everything else. So then the breastplate is put on top of it. Everything goes on top. So everything else that Paul talks about, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the spirit, the word of God, all of them are only accessed through the belt of truth. They're all only accessed through truth. It's the foundation for all the other ones. And then what's the truth that Paul is referring to? Well, we've been talking about this truth since chapter one. What is the truth that Paul is talking about? It's the truth of the gospel. The gospel truth is that even though God created us, like out of his immense love, he overflowed that and he created us. And yet each one of us has turned away from God. Right? Ephesians talks about it like we have darkened hearts. Each one of us in our own way has rejected him. And that rejection of God has caused the sin and the evil that is in the world. It's caused it. And it's, 
it's caused the evil that's in your own heart, which means none of us deserve the armor of God. None of us deserve it. None of us should have it. And instead of holding the sword, we deserve the sword. And yet out of his great love and mercy, when Jesus came, he didn't come with a sword. He didn't come in judgment. He took the sword. Really, it was the spear in his side. It was the nails in his hand. He was pierced. And when he died on the cross, he absorbed all the wrath of God for our sins. And those, those who put their faith in him, their trust in him, they get the armor. That's what's given to you. They get the truth, the righteousness, the peace, the salvation, the word of God, everything that comes along with it. And have you accepted that truth? Have you taken that truth into your life? Because until you do, what this is saying is you don't have any armor. God gives you his armor. But once you do, you get it. You get it all. You get the armor. You get the truth, the righteousness, the peace, the salvation, the spirit, the word of God. It all becomes yours. Putting on the armor of God is taking the truth of the gospel and putting deep into your heart. Remember our definition of wisdom from the last couple of weeks? Remember how that, how that went? Wisdom is doing the right thing over and over and over and over and over again until it just becomes automatic. That becomes who you are. That's wisdom. And what this text is saying is picking up on that idea. It's saying putting on the armor of God is thinking the truth, meditating on the truth over and over and over and over again until it becomes your automatic response to the lies of the devil when he tempts you. When he accuses you. That's putting on the armor of God. Well, two examples from the Bible, and some of us talked about this on Wednesday in our midweek study. You have Jesus and you have Adam. There's two examples. So Adam, he had the truth. God walked with him in the garden and he said, hey, you can eat from any of these trees in here except that one over there. That's the truth that God proclaimed to him. So he had the truth. And yet, what does the devil do? He comes as one of the created beings, so that Adam, one of the created beings that Adam must like care for and look after, and he, he comes to deceive him. He takes the potential for rebellion that was already in Adam, already in his heart, and he sings that note, doesn't he? Remember what he says? He causes him to doubt God's goodness. He's like, God doesn't really love you. If he did, you could eat from that tree. He sings the note that was already in his heart. He tempts Adam by causing him to doubt God's goodness, his kindness, his provision. And we know the story. He eats, he and Eve, they eat the fruit. That's one example. But then the other example is Jesus Christ. He also had the truth. In fact, he is the truth. But he goes out into the wilderness and the devil comes to tempt him too. He tempts him three times. Each time with a little clever twist of deception in order to make Jesus doubt the Fa God the Father's kindness and his goodness and his provision and his glory. And Jesus goes up against the devil face to face, and yet he stands. Adam falls, but Jesus stands. Each time Jesus is tempted, what does he do? Do you remember what he did? He spoke truth back to him. He speaks the truth of Scripture back at him. Both of them had the truth, but only one of them put it on. Only one of them wore it. Only one of them appropriated it into their life. And therefore, only one stood firm. And so you see, when you put the armor on, when you take the truth of the gospel into your life over and over and over and over again, 
Then you can stand when the temptation comes. Then you stand when the accusation comes. Then you can find grace and mercy. And so that's the armor. The armor is defensive. But there is one offensive weapon. Only one weapon Paul gives that puts the Christian on the offensive. Verse 18. And pray. You see that? And pray. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So what's the offense? It's prayer. That's the one offensive weapon that we're given. But why? Why that? Well, it's because God, who is, God is the mighty warrior. He's the one, it's his armor, remember? He's the mighty warrior. He's the victor. He fights the battle. He fights it on our behalf. And do you know what this means? It means then that here's the third point, which is awkward. But God's ear is our ear. It's always, always attuned to us. He's always listening to us. He wants to hear from us. There is no prayer that is too small. There is no prayer that is too big. His ear is always tuned to you, to your prayers. And look at, look at the text. Look at when, he, when does he want you to pray? What does it say? He wants you to pray when you're not busy, when you're bored. No, on all occasions. And what kinds of prayers does he want you to pray? All kinds of prayers. And what kind of requests? All kinds of requests. And who does God want you to pray for? The Lord's people. And yes, of course, if that's true, then, then Paul asked the Ephesians to start by praying for him. That's what the next few verses are and for his ministry. And then the last few verses, that last little greeting, he sends uh, Tychicus to tell them what to pray for, right? So Paul, Paul genuinely believes that prayer is the best offensive weapon. He actually sends a person to Ephesus to go and tell them what to pray for him. That's his offense. Now, do you see this? That, that the way we go on offense is not to go out and fight the devil. We don't go out looking for a fight. We put on our defensive armor, the very armor that God himself wears. And the way we go on offense is to pray. And can I just give you a brief snapshot of the one who fights our battle for us? We saw some of it in our liturgy already, but even more so, when you get to Revelation chapter 9, you read about the great warrior. You've heard about him in Isaiah. You've read about him here in Ephesians. In, in Revelation 19, you read about the great warrior again. And this great warrior, of course, is Jesus Christ who comes in the end, in glory and in victory. And here's how he is described. He is a warrior with armor. Listen to this. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Do you know what the image is there? There's one warrior, only one person has their robe dipped in blood. Everyone else is white and clean. That's who we pray to. Coming out of his mouth, you hear the armor, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when you're praying, when you go on offense, that's who you're praying to. 
That's our offense. When Paul says pray in the spirit on all occasions, it doesn't mean pray in tongues or in some sort of extraordinary way. It's not excluding it, but that's not what he's getting at. It's just his way of saying all prayer is to Jesus Christ through the spirit. That's what we pray to. A mighty warrior who fights our battle. I'll just finish with this. Um, a number of a couple of years ago, Emmy and I started a small group in our home, and it was uh, it was a really unique small group. We intentionally had someone from every continent on Earth, except Antarctica, though I tried. Uh, but there weren't many penguins living where we were, so uh, and none. If they were, they weren't willing to come to church. So um, we had someone from pretty much every, every continent on Earth: and, uh, North America, South America, Europe, Africa, Middle East, Asia. We even had someone from New Zealand. So we had the whole Earth covered in this small group, and a little more than half our group were new Christians, people who had only come to faith within the last year or so. And, and we realized fairly early on that uh, most of the people in our group they really struggled with prayer. Uh, they didn't really see the value of it. They didn't really understand it. Uh, and so they didn't do it much. And so I asked a few people about it. You know, we'd be in our group. We'd be like, okay, let's pray. And then, like, Emmy and I would pray, and that would be it. Uh, and so I asked a few people about it. And um, they basically said they just felt like they were just speaking to the ceiling, like their words were bouncing off the ceiling. And I would venture to guess that there's a few here today who feel the same. That you've got some things you've been praying for, and you prayed and prayed and prayed, and it maybe feels like the Lord isn't listening. Well, we, um, I mean, I sort of thought about it, and we decided we we're going to start to do something. And at first, it was just in an old spiral notebook. You remember the, some of you don't, because you've always had computers or iPads, uh, but the old spiral-bound notebooks. Yeah, you remember those? Uh, it started with one of those, and uh, unfortunately, that notebook is lost to the ages. I don't know where it is, but one of the guys in the group for Christmas had this little journal made. And you probably can't read it, but it says, Ken and Emmy's prayer request book, exclamation point. Um, and uh, he did that because something unique was happening. Um, we started writing in the journal, in that notebook, uh, little boxes, little check boxes next to all the prayer requests. And what we would do is every time we'd get together to pray, before we'd ask for new things, we'd say, hey, let's look back at some of these old ones. Has God answered any of these? And we just started checking off prayer requests like crazy. And we'd have this little celebration Every time um, we would check off a box and I pulled this out this week and I was thumbing through some of the old ones and I, I got stuck on November 27th, 2019, because on November 27th, 2019, we had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven prayer requests that week. Every single one of them has a checkbox. It's checked off every single one of them. Now, remember what Paul said. Pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. But, you know, on this list, like, one was about someone who was, like, a little bit concerned they were coming down with something. A few of them were, actually, there were about um, three of them that, that were asking for jobs. They needed work. Um, a couple of them were for boldness to invite people to Christmas events at Church, but every single prayer request made November 27, 2019, in our little international small group, was answered. 
by the warrior, by the king of kings. That is our defensive weapon against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, and against the devil, against the liar and his schemes. So now do you see we need to come to grips with this? That we can't fall into either of those two er errors, that either the devil's behind everything or he's behind nothing. We have to come to grips with who our real enemy is, that there's a real devil who's not only God's enemy, but he's ours, but only then, when we come to grips with that, can we stand? Because the warrior fights for us. And then this is how we stand, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this armor. We thank you for your kindness and your goodness and your provision to us. And Lord, we need, we need you to fight our battles. We're asking you to fight our battles. And so, Lord, whatever everyone's carried in here today, whatever that request might be, Lord, would you answer it? Would you show us your power on our behalf? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.